The next approach is the approach that I'm going to take. I'm a hybrid. I, I think there are strengths to all these views. Thus, really intelligent, godly men and women have taken these views. I think there are weaknesses to these views because we're talking about highly symbolic, apocalyptic literature that is very hard to just create a system. I think the problem with a lot of these views is that a system has been created and then we take passages and fit it into the system. I have for a very, very, very long time realized that I annoy a lot of people <laughs> as a teacher. And I annoy a lot of people because I don't fit into any camp. People are like, well, you're a Calvinist, right? Because you said da-da-da. I'm like, no, no, I'm not. I think there's great strengths to Calvinism, but I think there are great weaknesses. Well, then the opposite is an Arminius, so you must be that. And I'm like, no, I think there are great weaknesses to that, and there are great strengths. That's why very intelligent people that I have read their books and I admired them for what they have taught me about Christ and my relationship and the Bible, but I agree with them and I don't. Right? That's true of everybody. You don't even agree with, like, everybody in your own family. I don't care. This isn't a political comment. This is a great analogy. I don't care what you think about Robert Kennedy, who's running for the Democratic Party right now, but he made a great comment when they said, hey, even your own family doesn't agree with you about the COVID and viruses and all that kind of stuff. And he was like, does everybody in your family agree with you on everything? And she's like, well, I get you got, got me there, right? I mean, whatever you think about him, that was still a great refute, right? The problem is I don't think any view can really encapsulate a book. The minute you start developing a system or a view, literary metaphors begin to chafe, right? Even if you've been in poetry class, you can't just pigeonhole all of Emily Brown or Alan Poe into this rigid systematic system and make everything fit that way. It doesn't. Even John takes the symbols throughout the First Testament and then kind of pushes it in a different direction to fit into what the Revelation is saying. Now, you can argue that it's Christ and John or John interpreting the thing. Either way, it's still in the text and still inspired by God. So even Christ takes wine always represented the Messiah and the abundance of joy. Always. Never did it ever represent priesthood. Water Cleansing water always represented priesthood. It never represented kingship. Christ takes the water of cleansing of sins and he transforms it into wine, the coming of the Messiah. And he takes the priesthood and the kingship and he brings it together, which is forbidden by the Mosaic law. So he takes two things that represented different ideas that were never ever crossed in the First Testament. And the idea of king and priest were never allowed to be together when, when the king saw took the mantle of priesthood, God killed him for it. Because it's too much power for one man or woman. Then Christ comes along and he merges these things together and he takes these symbols and he pushes them in a direction that it makes sense, but it also is not how anybody in the, any Jew in the First Testament would have come to the conclusion. That's what John is doing. He's taking these symbols and then he kind of pushes them in a little different direction to make it go deeper like Jesus did. When you're having all this complexity, no system can do justice. No system, in my opinion, can do justice. In my opinion, I think you have to take each chapter on its own. And it's very clear from John that 1 through 3 are coupled together. 4 to 5 are coupled together. 6 through 8 are coupled together. There's very clear markers, and these markers are asides. 
There's these asides where he just kind of goes off to this other completely different thing. And he's letting you know that we've done it with the union. But there are themes still tying it all together. You can't divorce them from each other. But it's very clear that we can take these sections one by one. And he himself is, even the futurists, even the preterists, everybody agrees that there's times where he's talking here and then he goes completely back in time and talks about something else. Everybody believes that he's talking either about the present or the future in chapter 9, but then all of a sudden, chapter 12, he recapitulates all of history. He goes back to the birth of Christ, the crucifixion. So that's clearly a marker that we're no longer in sequential events anymore. So then when we come back from the aside, are we in a completely different moment in history kind of a thing? I think a lot, a lot of scholars are not happy with the preterists because too much is the past. They're not happy with the future because too much is the future. The historists are just odd. <laughs> the idealists have metaphorized the too much. And most scholars are just saying, I don't want to be in a camp anymore. I think we should just take each section of Revelation at itself. And we just, we just figure out what John is trying to say there. And so if you have to push me into a camp, I would be, hold on to it, a preterist who is a typology idealist who also is a premillennialist. I will unpack that as we go. And even then, I don't know if I agree with that. So, <laughs> so right now, if you're worried that I'm going to attack your view, don't worry, I don't fit into any view. And that's how I've been my entire life. I have just never fit into a camp. I've never fit in a camp. And I don't want to be in a camp. Well, I'm a preterist. But I am not a full preterist. Because I do believe in the literal, physical second coming of Jesus Christ, where all evil and all sin is eliminated, and we will live with Christ on earth without any of that for all eternity. And as I mentioned already, I'm not even really a preterist, because I'm also an idealist, typologist, and premillennialist, which I'm going to be unpacking. I believe most of it was written to the original audience and had a very specific meaning for them. But it doesn't stop it in there because it's also written for us. He did not have us in mind when he was writing. He knows nothing about Peter, John, James, whoever it is. They don't have no idea what an American is in the 21st century. But God is so the living word and so transcends time that those things can also speak to us, and not just in a good application, allegorical sense, but a very real, this is what I'm going into my life, and it just happens to match up with this thing so well. How cool is God like that? So I'm a prayerist because I believe it starts there. It's defined there. In some ways it was fulfilled. I'm an idealist because I believe this is apocalyptic literature. I believe that it's symbolic. I believe that we are in the tribulation right now. And I believe, not in a total application sense, but I think there are very specific events that can match up with the plagues, but they're not just happening one time. I believe that the plagues could all be happening in America in one way. Maybe we're in the middle of the bulls in America, but Africa is in the middle of the trumpets or in a revolution or a revival happens and we get reset back because all throughout the First Testament God has said, if you follow me, I will open up the floodgates and I will bless you like you cannot believe. 
But if you sin, then I will send plagues and famine into the land. And if you continue to sin and not repent, then I will amp it up and I will send invasion and foreign oppression. And if you continue, then I will carry you off into exile. And he goes through, the, and that's just the big picture, but he goes through these very minute, it will increase, 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 increase. But if my people get on their knees and repent of their sins, then I will heal their nation. And no matter where they are in that escalation, he always resets them when they repent. And sometimes they get further and they repent and he resets them. Sometimes they don't get as far and they repent and he resets. And then eventually they don't ever repent. Kings chapter seven, second Kings chapter 17. And he takes them all the way in exile. But then he promises them that he'll bring them back to the land where they have an opportunity to go through his relationship all again. And so I think that's what's happening. I think we're in a symbolic, idealist tribulation. But I think you can point to very specific events in history and say that's the Antichrist, Hitler. I think that's the Antichrist too. But then it can, a revival can happen and things can get reset and the next Antichrist will not be as bad maybe. But then people don't repent. And I think America is getting worse and worse and worse because F.A. Hayek, the revolt of the masses, Jose Ortega, um, sorry, F.A. Hayek, the road to serfdom, um, Jose Ortega, Christians, the revolt of the masses talk about that how we will always walk away from our God and move towards our individual desire to do whatever we want. But because we don't really want responsibility for our life, we'll always enthrone some kind of dictator or president or leader to do things for us. And we'll give them more and more and more and more power until we become socialistic and a serfdom. And then one, two things will happen. We'll be incredibly oppressed and exterminated or we'll have a revival and set ourselves back. American Revolution, right? And I don't want a bloody revolution. It could be a spiritual revival, but we're definitely moving that way unless we have a revival. And so I think that every nation is at different places in all these judgments. But at the same time, the church is also actively working in that kind of stuff. And so that's why I'm an idealist that would say, yes, this plague and stuff matches up with something perfectly in history, but it also matches up with that and that and that and that. And, that. and I don't have to redo my YouTube video because this is just recapitulation over and over and over again. So think of it like spiraling down the toilet rather than sequentially moving through history. Like that visual? So, <laughs> and you can spiral back out and a reverse flush if there's a revival. Although you would never want that kind of a toilet in your bathroom. That's when it gets clogged. You're like, oh, wait a minute, we're going to sell elementary school now. Okay, I'll stop. I w did I say I teach high school kids? It's the constant battle to meet them at their level but never become dematured. I don't take it all because I do believe that there's a point, and I believe in 17 where the language starts really truly becoming futurist. Every view that you take, unless you're a full preterist, you have to decide somewhere in Revelation becomes futurist. A futurist got already solved. But even the preterist has to say at this point it's future because I will not deny the second coming of Christ because the second coming of Christ literally to the earth and the kingdom of God coming to earth is so well attested in so many passages in the Bible in the first and second testament that you cannot deny that that's literal. So at some point, no matter what view you take, even the letters, even the futurists will say the letters are past, but at chapter 6 it becomes future. So everybody has to decide where it becomes future. That's not a weakness of the view. That's not playing loose and goose with the text to fit my system. That's what everybody has to do. And I think when God talks about the ultimate fall of the beast in Babylon, that's pretty clear we're in the future now because I have not seen the ultimate fall of evil or Satan in the world yet. 
At that point, I start saying, I think this is future now. At that point, I start thinking that there's a little bit more literalness to it. And I tend to lean more towards a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. Although I'm open to the amillennial, this might all be symbolic too. But I think there's too many things that are hard to work out. We'll talk about that later. And typology. Why do I say typology? Typology is the idea of painting a picture to refer to a very specific event in history. But then that picture gets retransposed on another event and another event and another event. I'll give you multiple examples from different angles. I know I've talked about this in the past, but I also know I have a lot of new attendees, and typology is a big part of the Bible. Typology is universally accepted by every scholar. This is not a disputed thing. The question is, where do you apply it? So typology is Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, it says, To you a child will be born, to the virgin a child will be born, and you will call him Emmanuel. And we're all like, on Christmas morning, Jesus! It's not about Jesus. It has nothing to do with Jesus. If you read the historical context, and I'll just give you the big picture, but if you want the deeper picture, go back to my pre-exilic commentary and my notes, and I'll take you verse by verse. Ahaziah is king, and there's two nations in the north, Aram and... Uh, um, um, so Ahaziah is king in Judah, the southern kingdom, after the divide. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Israel was split into two kingdoms. In the south, Ahaziah was king. He was a jacked-up, corrupt king. The, nor- the kingdom of Israel in the north, and then the power ahead of him, Aram, decided that they were going to make a treaty with each other and attack Ahaz. And Ahaz is freaking out. I'm going to die. I can't stop them. And Isaiah comes to him and says, God will not allow you to be destroyed by these two empires. They will not move one stone. They will not shoot one arrow. Not one person will get sick or die. For I am doing this not because you are a great godly man, that you may know that I am the divine God of the universe, and you will turn to me in repentance. But every prophecy requires a sign. Something Prophecies are usually future. And so a sign is something that will immediately happen that only God can do to prove to me that I can trust you about the future. And so he says, Ahaziah, ask for a sign. And Ahaziah's like, oh, I can't do that. I'll put God to the test. And Isaiah basically says in my modern day translation, you idiot, if God asks you for do something, you're not putting him to the test for doing it. <laughs> and in fact, I will give you a sign. A child will be born to a young woman, and you will call him Emmanuel. And before he is old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, these nations will be destroyed, and they will walk away. Now, is that about Christ? No. Because the sign always happens before the prophecy. And the prophecy was fulfilled around the 800s when they were destroyed. And Christ didn't come before then. You go to chapter 8, and oh and behold, Isaiah's wife is now pregnant. And she has a child. And before that child knows the difference between right and wrong, the Assyrian, or the Aram, and Israel in the north are conquered and destroyed. And what Isaiah was saying is, nobody knows this, not even me. And the only way I can know it is because of God. But that woman over there is pregnant with a child right now. And when she gives birth to a boy, that boy, every time you look at him, he'll be a reminder to you that God is with you. You don't have to fear these nations. It's not about Christ. It can't be about Christ unless Christ happened before Aram was destroyed. And that didn't happen. 
This is not about. And then later you go on and it makes it even clearer in chapter 8. And then chapter 9 makes it even clearer that it's not about Christ. And the word there is not virgin. That word for Hebrew word is never translated virgin ever in the Bible. In the, in the first test in Hebrew. Never. Not once. It's a young woman. So then you're like, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Corey. It's Matthew who quotes Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. And he says to fulfill scripture, he did this. Yeah, but Matthew doesn't mean it that way. Wait a minute. There's two ways of interpreting prophecy. There's foretelling and there's typology. Foretelling is when I say, in two years, America is going to collapse and be destroyed. If that happens, I'm not a prophet. That was just a random illustration. Don't come to me and look to other things. Okay? Two years, America is going to be destroyed, and it's going to be the Chinese who are going to come in, and they're going to da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I'm literally telling you what's going to happen. I've given you dates, time periods, and specific events. Okay? Foretelling is when Samuel says to Saul, go home, and when you get to the tree of Tabor, you're going to meet two men who are going to say your donkeys have been found. Go home. And then when you get to the Rachel's tomb, you're going to find men with loaves of bread, wineskin, and a goat, and they will give you a couple loaves of bread, and then you'll go in this city and you'll begin to prophesy. That's foretelling. It happened exactly the way that Samuel said it was going to happen. Foretelling happens a lot in the Bible. Foretelling is, behold, a day will come when the Messiah will come, and he will be the king. That's foretelling. But there's also times where it's typology. And typology is where they paint a picture, and then you get into the future. See, foretelling is in the past, and it predicts something that's going to come in the future. Typology looks to something in the past. You're standing in the future, and looks to something in the past and says, that, what happened there, is kind of like what's happening now. It's kind of like when your pastor says, Christianity is like football. Satan is Michigan, and the Christians are Ohio State. <laughs> and every Christian we win for Christ is a touchdown. And the Holy Spirit's the coach. Okay? That's not literal, right? But he's pointing to something that everybody understands to help make a point that one might be confusing to people. And so typology, Matthew comes along, and he says... Just like we had a corrupt, evil king who was not following God and not trusting him, about ready to be destroyed by a foreign empire, but God came in and protected them and preserved them with a child, so also we are under a corrupt king, Herod the Great. And there's a foreign empire called the Roman Empire that's coming and destroy us. And to prove to you that God has not abandoned us, a child has been born today in Bethlehem, and he is God with us. And he will establish his throne. And he will prevent Rome from completely annihilating you and taking your souls because there's a kingdom of God. But typology, not only do you point to the past and say that back there is kind of like right now. But then when you get to now, you blow the whole thing up and you say, but he's not just a child born to a young woman. He's a God born miraculously to a virgin woman. It's way cooler than somebody knowing that a woman is pregnant in advance. It's literally the God-man born into a virgin woman who's never had sexual relations. And it's not just literally not an example of God being with you. He's literally God with you. And he's not going to just be prophesying that a kingdom won't attack you. He's literally going to destroy all the evil kingdoms in the entire world. I'll give you another example of typology. Does the lamb being sacrificed in the first testament, does everybody think, oh, Jesus... Nobody thought that. 
But then Jesus comes along and says, just like that sacrificial lamb, so am I. But I'm way cooler. I won't just atone for the sins that you committed in the last few weeks, and then you're going to have to do it again and again. I am an eternal sacrifice. And I'm even cooler than that. I'm not a lamb that you drag by against its will into the thing and put a knife to it. I will volunteer myself. And I'm even cooler than that. I won't stay dead. I'm coming back alive. And then the tabernacle. Nobody thought, Jesus. But Jesus comes along and says, I'm the light of the world. And I'm way cooler because I'm not just seven flames. I am literally the light of the world. And I am the temple. And I am the bread. And I am the wine. And nobody was eating the bread and thinking, Jesus. Nobody was drinking wine thinking, Jesus. But Jesus says, I am that, but I'm way cooler. That's typology. And so sometimes the author... So if you go back to the First Testament and read in context, and you're like... That guy ripped that out of context. That's not what it means. Then it's probably typology. It's probably typology. And so that's why I'm a typologist. Because what is interesting is that God describes the Assyrian Empire in a very specific way with certain metaphors. And they come and they destroy the Israel. And then he takes the exact same metaphors and he applies it to Babylon, coming to destroy Judah. And he takes the exact same metaphors in Zephaniah and he applies it to the Persians who are going to come and destroy the Babylonians. And he takes the same metaphors in Daniel and applies it to the Greeks who are going to come and destroy the... And he keeps saying this, that just like that, it's going to happen again. And even Zephaniah says, and these nations are not the end, it's going to happen again and again and again and again. And then John just happens to take the same metaphors and apply it to the Roman Empire. But he uses the word Babylon, which has been dead and gone a long time, which means one could assume that Babylon can be applied to any other empire that comes along. And and that's why I'm a typologist. I do believe that there's very specific literal events, not unlike the idealists, but the reason I believe this view is because this is what I see in the prophets over and over and over again. God's favorite form of communication to help you understand what's happening in the future based on the past is typology. And that's how the Bible was not written to you, but for you. And the more you read the first testament, the more you realize that God is saying, this applied to these very specific people, but I'm going to recapitulate all these imagery for the next empire. So it applies to the next generation. And I'm going to do it again, so it applies to that generation. And then he does it enough times that we can see all the metaphors and all the markers and we can say, wow, America kind of looks like that. Wow, China kind of looks like that. Wow, the UN. And that's why everybody can make the prostitute be anything. Because it is, almost. And then it warns you to say, I shouldn't sell my soul to America or China or anybody else. Does that kind of make sense? Now, if that you're like, well, I need a lot more details, don't worry, because it's the book of Revelation, and we're going to get into it. And once again, you can disagree with me. I hold this. I, obviously, I hold this kind of tightly, because I've done lots of research and put the time in, just like all of you hold all of your opinions kind of tightly, because you have evidence for it. But I also hold it kind of loosely that I also know this is complicated. This is complicated. But don't worry. I will do every view justice to my best of my ability. So that if you signed up and you're like, I want to better understand Revelation, and you're just giving me your view, obviously my view is going to be strong, but I'm going to give you every other view so that you can walk away and say, I feel like I have at least the vast majority of Christianity's view. Does that kind of make sense? Because if you've been with me long enough, I'm totally willing to admit, I don't know. I don't know. And you're going to hear me say that a lot. But I think you're also going to find that many of the chapters we go through doesn't really matter what view you take. The first three chapters, 
they're the letters to the churches. It's not really going to, nobody is going to have a view that's going to have a dog in the fight, so to speak. Chapters 4 and 5, there's some disagreements on how to interpret certain things in here, but nothing that's a major divisive view kind of a thing. And even many of the chapters between 6 and 18 that we talked about, those are the judgments. There's many chapters in there that most people are in agreement. And, of course, the last final chapters people agree. So you're going to find that these four views that we had to take so much time on are actually going to touch very few of Revelation, very little of Revelation compared. So no matter what view you take, I hope that you'll still find it very beneficial to have my perspective as we're teaching because it's not really that different than a lot of other people's perspectives. So 